Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. The journey to sobriety is paved with many challenges. For many people with a substance use disorder, stigma may stem from the inaccurate beliefs that addiction is a moral failing instead of what we know it to be, a chronic, treatable disease from which you can continue to lead a healthy, happy life. Holding a master's degree in communications and media studies, this week's guest, Lotta Dan, has worked for 25 years as a TV journalist and producer whilst also developing a dependency to alcohol. With the help of penning an anonymous blog called Mrs. D is Going Without, which became a best-selling memoir of the same name, Lotta got sober in 2011. She has since published Mrs. D is Going Within and The Wine O'Clock Myth, The Truth You Need to Know About Women and Alcohol. Lotta now manages the, the large online peer support community Living Sober, funded by the New Zealand Drug Foundation and Health Promotion Agency, and works as a lived experience facilitator of Addiction 101 workshops through Blueprint for Learning. Stay tuned as Lotta joins me to share her personal experiences on the journey to sobriety, the role of judgment and stigma, and how you can support someone in need. Lotta, thanks so much for sharing your story, your journey, and also what you're up to with our listeners. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Kia ora. Kia ora. Uh, Care to pair hair, Quay? That means how are you? Very good. Okay. Well, after that, I didn't know didn't know too much else. So thanks for interpreting that. Tell us whereabouts in New Zealand are you based? To Whanganui Atara, which is Wellington in the capital. The Windy City. Indeed. Yeah. Although it's not today, it's lovely and still out my window. I have to say. There you go. How long have you been based in Wellington for? Most of your life. Oh well, I was here for about four or five years in my very early 20s and then came back off and on I've been here 25 years I think of it as home I wasn't born here but I do think of it as my home good on you and so Lotta tell us about your your professional experience what have you been up to and then we can get into your lived experience as well so my professional experience prior to the big life change shall we shall we say I trained as a journalist so I sort of entered um, 
I mean, I've got a reader-writer brain, and I grew up in a house where intellectual curiosity was a really highly valued characteristic. So I went to journalism school, and I trained as a journalist, and then I went to broadcasting school and trained in television and radio. So my career used to be television production, working for daily news programs, current affairs. Wow. I've also made reality TV and I've made a lot of documentaries and that sort of thing. So that was kind of, you know, I thought that was going to be me for my life, just sort of hardworking, hard partying TV professional, but things took a different turn, shall we say. And tell us, what is that culture like of being a part of that media side of things? Is it plenty of whining and dining? Is that is that just the uh, a lot of a lot of functions, that sort of thing? Is that just the lifestyle and the culture? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of big personalities for starters, um, because you have to be kind of social and out there and ringing people and talking to people and putting yourself on the TV or, yeah, so a lot of big personalities, curious minds, and a lot of adrenaline, a lot of deadlines. You know, it's super fun, super stressful, fast-paced, rewarding, kind of got kudos, you know, because it's the media. So, yeah, very heady, you might say, and certainly boozy, yeah. I mean, most culture, to be honest – I hear now, you know, people say, oh, God, the teaching profession is really boozy or, oh, you should be a lawyer or, you know. I mean, to be honest, in our society, I think most sectors are very boozy. But certainly broadcast media, yes. Friday night drinks were huge. I, You know, the many, many years that I woke up on a Saturday morning absolutely wrecked from a big week and then a big night partying. And tell us, has it has alcohol been part of your life since you, you know, growing up, left school, and and at what point did you become aware that there was a, a greater issue going on? So yes, I grew up with alcohol, absolutely. I mean, you know, the culture. I'm sure it's the same in Australia as New Zealand. It's everywhere, and yeah. it was certainly in my house, in my community, in my wider society. I just saw alcohol as something that everyone did, and I took to it at 15. By sort of 18, 19, I was a daily drinker. We have a great capacity for bad behaviour, so no one ever said anything was wrong with my boozing and. You know, there's always someone you can point the finger at that's worse than you. Oh, at least I'm not like, you know, so-and-so over there. I started realizing things were problematic once I got into my 30s and sort of mid-30s. And I'd had kids at that point, but I, you know, I didn't drink while I was pregnant, but I'd maintained the habit once the kids were off the boob, shall we say. And I just, things were getting heavier and more dysfunctional and I was I started just getting worried about it. I had a little voice in my head that was worried and I couldn't ignore it, thankfully, because it saved me in the end. But that little voice just kept on just sort of chirping up. Is this okay? Is this normal? And all the while my drinking was getting heavier and heavier and sloppier and more embarrassing. And yeah, eventually I just, I mean, I'm summarizing massively here, but eventually I had to pull the pin because things got really bad. And I, I honestly had no control over it I couldn't control my drinking when I touched it at the end in the last few years when I touched it I got drunk there was no casual glass of wine for me were you sort of alone in that in do you feel like many people you knew in your circle were uh, going through something similar or do you think you were sort of we were all alone in it I felt all alone in it 
I didn't see anyone in my circle that was going through something similar. I mean, my circle was pretty small at the end because we had the kids and we were at home. A lot of my drinking was happening at home. But even if we did go out socialising, everyone's drinking all the time. So, no, I felt completely alone and isolated. I felt broken like there was something wrong with me. Why couldn't I just drink like everyone else and be casual? Why was I always the one that was just taking it too far? And there wasn't any sort of outward discussion. I mean, even now, all the years since I've quit, there's far more, you know, features in the Sunday paper and social media accounts and just sort of chatter about, you know, whether they call it sober curiosity or even just being in recovery. At the time, there was nothing. So I felt completely alone. And it was a really hard place to be in because I was miserable and yeah, isolated. And my husband and I, we have a great relationship, but he didn't understand. If I ever did try and talk to him about it, he really didn't understand because he just doesn't have the same problem. He doesn't have that inner sort of debate and dialogue about his intake and his drinking. So, yeah, I mean, this is why I do what I do now because I know there's still people now who feel isolated and alone like they're the they're broken. And, I mean, the main thing I always want to say to people is you are not alone. There are so many of us who struggle with this drug. Yes, and I'm keen to hear more about that and where you're at with that at the moment. But if we go back to, I mean, your partner wasn't aware that you had the issue for a while. He was. You mentioned he was doing shift so you could hide it quite easily. Is that right, during the week? Yeah, he was actually a TV, breakfast TV presenter. So he went to bed at 8.30 at night and got up at 3.30 in the morning to go into the studio and shine on the telly. And so... I had this kind of hidden dark secret that even he didn't realize the extent of it. And he was preoccupied and busy. And also it kind of crept up slowly over time, my drinking to where it was almost our normal. I mean, now looking back and my husband certainly says, looking back, yeah, that was really crazy. You know, the amount of empty bottles in our recycling, the amount that we were spending on it, but it had just sort of increased so slowly over time. We almost couldn't see it for how, how bad it was. So, yeah, I mean, he was there alongside me in many ways, but with this issue and this problem and this struggle, I was on my own. And when you say you took it too far, was it the amount you were drinking or the regularity of what you were, how often you were doing it? Both. So my Both. drinking habit was really largely categorized by the daily okay. aspect of it. It was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you know, that's what I did. I was five o'clock as wine o'clock every single day. And yeah, I mean, I'm always sort of loath to talk about amounts because people compare and they think, oh, well, I don't drink that much. I'm okay. Mm. I'll just say right now, the drinker knows inside their own head if it's a problem or not. Forget about the amounts. You know if it's a problem. For me, it was a bottle a night. And then I started needing to open that second bottle always because I just wasn't, it wasn't enough the first bottle, I didn't quite feel full, is what I used to call it. And this is on a Monday night, mm. Tuesday night. Uh, Friday night, well, it's Friday night, so it'll be easily a bottle. Plus, you maybe you started with a couple of gin and tonics, you know, fancy with the lemon and then, and then maybe even a liqueur. I don't know. I wasn't that fancy, actually. But you know what I'm saying. Friday night, Saturday night, always heavier. But it was then Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Like, it was every single night. I was putting this drug in my body and numbing myself. I mean, how the hell could I have known 
I mean, I just think back now, and I, I know I'm jumping ahead, but, you know, for example, I'm heading into menopause. How would I have any idea what was actually happening in my body, in my head, let alone with my emotions, things I'm dealing with, with this drug there constantly? I don't know how I did it, but anyway, I did for many, many, many years. And was your, where was your, I mean, your mum and dad, your brothers, sisters, I assume, I assume you, I think you spoke to your sister yesterday, but tell us about the support networks and then, and is it, has it been a, a, a challenge in the family historically or is it you on your So I'm pretty careful about what I say about my family because they haven't chosen to go public, but let's okay. just say me getting sober was a little bit like a bomb going off. Yeah. And then I wrote books about it and now I go on the media constantly and everyone's incredibly proud of me and I'm kind of over there. You're over there and you're so clever and, <laughs> you know, it's I live in a drinking culture uh, in more ways than one. So close, loving, family, you know, we're not without our problems obviously, but we, we do pretty well considering and... Yeah, like I say, I've just, from the get-go, I just deal with, I don't blame anyone. I certainly, there's no need to. The problem is mine to fix, and I just concentrate on myself. Everyone's been very supportive, if not a little confused at first, and I don't know, maybe they didn't know, maybe they doubted I would actually do it, but I think they're under no illusions now that this is sticking, and now my big sister's joined me, and she's got sober as well, and so we are quietly leading the revolution, shall we say. Good on you. Not so quietly, I hear, with all the stuff that you're doing, but we'll get to that as well in a second. But tell me a little bit about what made you want to go and seek help at some point and where did you go when you wanted to seek help? Well, I didn't go anywhere. This was the problem. I wanted to fix myself. I had to stop drinking. I got to the point where I was hiding empty bottles from my husband and things were getting bad. That They really were. I was, I was the level of my intoxication most nights was beyond where I could pretend it was normal anymore. So I just set out to fix myself and I I didn't reach out for any help. Oh, no, I did ring a helpline. That's not true. I did ring a helpline, spoke very briefly to a lovely woman who sent me some information in the mail. So that's actually quite a big deal and it was scary. She sent me information. I started measuring out and becoming aware of the amounts that I was drinking in terms of standard drinks. That was all sort of chinks in my brain to move me around to change. So I, that was probably the only kind of outside help I got. But once I made the decision to quit, I just did it on my own, which was foolish because you, you need support. And as I you know, said when I gave my um, presentation yesterday, I started writing a blog online which was supposed to be just a hidden away secret little online diary to myself I didn't ever think anyone would find it but they did a lot of people started reading it a lot of people started commenting and an amazing community of support grew up around the blog and that's when I discovered my community and it keeps me sober to this day so tell so it was a way for you to organize your thoughts to try and help you used to write yourself a letter every day, dear Mrs. D, or so, that was was that something like that? Yep, I called myself Mrs. D, and I wrote to myself every day in this blog, dear Mrs. D, and at the end I wrote love Mrs. D, 
And I mean, it's a bit weird, isn't it? But anyway, (laughs) that's what I did. And I just sort of G'd myself along and reminded myself. I kept on because I just, I knew my brain and I did not want to have my thoughts trick me back into drinking. And boy, oh boy, did my brain try, you know, cravings. Yes, they're physical, but they are largely that wall of words in your own head trying to convince you to drink. It's your own voice convincing you to do something that, you know, you don't want to do. It's crazy. It's a madness. So yeah, I wrote to myself every day and people started reading. And I think first I found one other blog and I left a comment and then someone followed that comment back to me. And it just sort of very organically slowly grew to where I was getting hundreds and thousands of hits every week. And and just the most amazing, kind, non-judgmental support. Every comment in the early days was like a hug and I felt supported and understood. And so, yeah, that's that's what really transformed my whole journey. Sorry to use that word. And it's now basically informed my work that I do today. And what was the hardest part about making the, the leap into sobriety for you? Was it was it the internal dialogue? Was it... Um... Was it doing it alone? Did you feel alone when you were doing it? Was, As you look back on it, what did you think was the hardest part about that? The hardest part about it all was learning how to feel. And I know, again, it's a cliche, but I had never allowed myself to feel any so-called uncomfortable emotion without putting alcohol on top of it. And so when I took the alcohol away, if I had a day where I felt sad, I just had to be sad. And I had never done that. And it was awful. Or if I had a day when I was angry, I'd never allowed myself to be angry. A lot of women don't, by the way, but I'd never allowed myself to express anger. I didn't know how to express anger. I didn't want to express anger. But it was there because there was no wine going on top of it. So that, and that's every day, you know, life happens. Emails come in that are tricky. Someone says something or you just feel a certain way. And I had no escape. And it was, I mean, it still is. It's a it's a job. And so that was the hardest thing. And, and I didn't know that was what was going to happen. I thought I was going to have to deal with cravings and learn how to socialize and and all of that stuff. And yes, there is all of that. But learning how to just ride the kind of waves of moods and emotion and deal with stuff in the raw every single day of my life was a huge job. And it's never going to end until the day I die. But I am much better at it now than I was at start. <laughs> And and so how was your family supportive of you during this time? I mean, tell us a little bit about that. The- so we lived far away from my relatives. I didn't have my parents or any of my sisters in town. So I just had my husband there. He was amazing. Yeah. Very, very supportive, patient. He could also see the transformation because alongside the tough stuff comes great stuff like sleeping well. And just not living with that guilt, the guilt of why did I drink that much, you know, lifted me up. And then the the lovely little moments that hit. I can remember the first time I felt pure joy because, of course, you can't selectively numb. If you're numbing the bad stuff, you're numbing the good stuff as well. And I remember going down a water slide with my son 
and and just feeling pure joy and it was quite it took my breath away and and just having this feeling of like oh my gosh this 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 is it it was just great so yeah my husband could see that and then he was just listened to me because hey guess what I talk a lot <laughs> I talk a lot about what's going on in my head and so he just listened to me externalize things because yes yeah. I was communicating online but I was also talking to him so he was wonderfully supportive and the kids I mean obviously it was part of your why was it as well um to try and be a bit more present for your kids is that that be correct or Yes, and you know, I was before I quit. I was getting grumpy at them for knocking over my wine glasses. I was reading them a bedtime story and stuff like that, which just didn't make me happy. They were very young. They say now they can't remember me drinking, which well, is great. They are now starting to drink, which is a whole nother, <sighs> you know, minefield. But anyway, they've got a lifetime of figuring out their own relationship with alcohol. But yeah, wanting them to just have a mum that was happier and more present and I mean yes absolutely they were part of my why but the but the, the main why was just I could see how bad things were and I just got to the point where I was like this is my one life this is my one life and I'm not I can't keep living it like this and so the knock-on for the kids was just yeah amazing they don't I don't think they realize um, how much I've changed the trajectory of their childhoods by quitting and so tell us about, obviously, your blog got Game Momentum and started as a blog. So tell us how the evolution of that happened and, and the name of it and stuff as well for our listeners. So I called it Mrs. D is Going Without, and it's still there, all of it, on Blogspot. If you Google Mrs. D is Going Without, you'll find it. After about three years of blogging and feeling you know, growing and feeling good about being sober and realizing that I had an ability to write in a way that people wanted to read. I I just pitched, I just emailed. <laughs> so people write to me sometimes now and say, how do you get a book published? And I'm like, I'm not a great story because I literally just emailed a publisher and said, here's a link to my blog. Do you think this would translate to a book? And they emailed me back and said, yes, it was that simple. But the book isn't just the blog in a book form. I actually kind of wrote the story behind the blog and a big part of my motivation was to let people know about the amazing support you could find online that is free, that you can be anonymous and protected and feel safe and just access this lovely, life-changing, kind, warm support. So that was the motivation. So then, uh, yeah, I wrote this memoir called Mrs. D is Going Without, which became a bestseller in New Zealand. It still is, actually. It's the top selling book that my publisher's ever had on ebook. Wow. Yeah. Did you ever think you're going to be an author one day? No. No, no, this is the thing. Everything everything just flowed on from quitting drinking. I didn't know that I could write like that. I thought I was going to just stay being a TV producer making TV shows. Wow. Which I never really enjoyed that much. Yeah. So yeah, so the book came out and then with the book came a whole lot of publicity and I sort of opened up in the media and because my husband had this high profile job that probably helped you know it was like oh wife of you know this guy you all know from breakfast tv and and I was a sort of middle class housewife and there weren't a lot of people then opening up and so I got lots of publicity and then more that just led to more people connecting with me and then that turned into this other community website that I now run which is funded by the New Zealand government which is amazing Tell us about that and what that what you're doing with that website. So it's called Living Sober, and the 
the web address is livingsober.org.nz, O-R-G.nz. It's just, it's not actually that fancy. It's just a a good, well-built platform where I still write and sort of talk about what's going on for me, but also interview other people in recovery or experts, a little bit of experts, but not a lot because it's really not about that. It's about peer support. And then we have this community area where people climb in there anonymously and talk to one another. It's just very simple because my blog was very limited. They could only just read me and comment. And now we've got a platform where they can all talk to one another. I actually, I pop in there, you know, regularly, but it's not about me. I'm not the special one. It's us, the Mm. collective. We're all in it together. And, oh, my gosh, it works. We've got thousands, over 12,000 registered members. And we get people in there daily just chatting to one another. And the, the thing about it is, and this is what I'm really proud of, is we have this ethos of kind and non-judgmental support and we have zero and I really mean this zero tension or negativity wow it is it is unbelievably kind so that's the thing about it it's it's a it's not just that you can be anonymous it's emotionally safe like we'll look after you I moderate I keep an eye on it I talk as well but I keep an eye on it every day and they know that and it's just we maintain this lovely atmosphere of of gentle, I mean, it's amazing. We've gone through pandemic. We've gone through Trump, you know, and there's a lot of Americans on our side and we've Mm. gone through all of this tricky polarizing. And if you think about the world now and the polarized nature of it and social media is just a minefield on our side, we're just really nice to each other (laughs) and we're dealing with real stuff. People are hurting. People are raw. People are lurching through those early stages and we're just kind and we lift each other up and we support and it's honestly, it's golden. It sounds like it'd be really rewarding to be uh, a part of that project. I know you're taking the focus off yourself, but tell us about, is, is are you doing that now instead of Mrs. D's blog or are you still doing the blog and you're doing this website as well? No, I don't write on the blog anymore. Actually, okay. I should go over there and just check. I think I maybe write once every six months. I'll just do a post. I leave it all up there because it does chart my literally day one. But no, I just focus on writing on the on the Living Sober website. I've got my social media accounts. I go in the media as much as I can. And I've written two other books and I've got a third one in the pipeline. And Ooh. I'm a full-time student this year. What do you so, say? How would I have ever done all of this if I was still necking over a bottle of wine every night? <laughs> That's that's amazing the achievements that you've already had. I mean, tell us about what what are you studying? Oh, you can probably guess. So cliched, counselling. Oh, good on you. Well, I just figured I've, I need a career that's going to take me through into my seventies, right? <laughs> and like literally, and uh, I was just looking ahead in my life, thinking, what am I going to be doing when I'm in my sixties and seventies? And I I just I'm obviously interested in this stuff, and yeah. so gone back to university, age fifty, and um. Studying counselling. Good on you. Well, congratulations on making that step. Thank you. It's tell us about. I mean, the obviously the tool, the new website, wonderful peer support. Tell us the power of that uh, and the impact that you've seen that have, but what it can have on people's lives. Oh, it's hugely powerful, and I'm so heartened to see it um, rise in prominence in the addiction sector and mental health sector. You know, it is 
Really powerful and really transformational. We we obviously need trained professionals as well. I do want to say that. It's, I'm not saying peer support is all that's going to work for everyone. It, it worked for me and that was all I needed. But there's a lot of people that they also need to reach out and get proper clinical help. Maybe they need a managed withdrawal. They do need might need group work or therapy or other in-person support. So, you know, I, I just want to say that at the outset. But no, peer support is is a vital component, I think, of recovery. And I know some people who have got sober and they've had some clinical sort of professional help and then they do well. But I can just always see that they, if you're operating, especially if alcohol was your drug of choice and you're still living in this world of ours, which is so booze soaked and you're not surrounded by other people who are sober, it is really tricky. So you just need those occasional check-ins with people that go, yeah, New Year's Eve is always a bit of a bummer or yeah, I didn't enjoy that party either, but hey, you know, and just that sort of thing. You just you need people who get it. If you don't know what it's like to have that internal struggle and deal with addiction, then you don't know what that's like. That doesn't make you bad or mean or thoughtless. You just can't empathize. So you need people who who get it. And yeah, that's what we are on our side. We all understand. We can make the same jokes. We have shorthand. We understand the power of cravings. We understand what it's like to face up every single day in the raw and never escape. And so, yeah, peer support all the way, 100% into it. (laughs) No, I can see that. You're obviously a big advocate for it and doing uh, a lot of stuff in regards to that and and helping get the word out there. What have been some of the biggest challenges for you since obviously going public with the relationship with alcohol has and to getting to where you are today? I mean, I assume it hasn't been an easy ride for you. There's been no struggles with the going public, if I'm honest. The struggles are the internal ones in terms of my just sobriety and recovery and dealing with emotional stuff and trying to work out how to how to look after myself and take care of myself and and live in the world I've had no problems going public I because I'm a media professional I know how the media works because I'm sharing all my secrets I've had no shame occasionally I might get what I call a vulnerability hangover if I've been on the tally and the interview didn't go well, I have on occasion cried and been upset by that. But mm-hmm. that passes pretty quickly. I don't care. Yeah. I, I, I will take that little bit of discomfort and those tears because every time I go public, someone contacts me. Yeah. And I always keep in mind I've got this imaginary person a shadowy figure, I can visualize them standing in their dressing gown in their kitchen, holding themselves tight, and I'm talking to them. So I take anything else that comes because I want to reach them, and I do because the media just is the way to reach people. So, yeah, apart from that, I've had no pushback. I've had no negativity. No one's been mean to me. It's been fine. (laughs) If you – I mean, you're 10 years sober now. Is that right, Lotta, or thereabouts? Yep, 10 years plus. Congratulations for that. And so tell us, if you're trying to deal with the struggle today, where would be the first port of call that you would go to? Obviously, your website must be up there somewhere, but what, what would be the steps that you would take if you were going through that again for any other people out there? Yeah, well, it depends sort of where you're at. So if it was someone like me who's managing okay with life, um, 
functioning and and just needs to 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 sort of deal with the alcohol then yes i would definitely reach out online or if there's something in your community if you wanted to go to aa or whatever and go and reach out and connect with peers and the great thing about our site and other online things is you can start by lurking you don't have to interact you can lurk lurking is really powerful because you're just starting to get yourself ready for that change and realizing you're not alone and and what have you but if there's if there's trauma that you know is there or if you're in a difficult relationship or if you're worried about your physical health maybe the amount that you're drinking is is a lot and you're worried about just cutting it out cold turkey i would just go to your doctor your gp and be you know they they don't have long they're good people but they i don't know if it's the same in australia you get like 15 20 minutes per Yep. Yeah. So you, you've just got to use your time. You've got to be really brave. And I know how scary it is, but you've just got to say to them, I'm worried about my drinking. I want to stop and I need help. Where can you refer me? Okay. And they'll help. They will help. You, but you've got to be blunt because they've not got much time, but they can then refer you on and they'll know where there might be funding, if it's counselling or whatever. So, yeah, reach out to your GP and, and be as brave as you can be take a support person if you need to and just be honest it's very good advice lotto tell us about the i mean let's go to the elevate a little bit and go more to the cultural aspect of things i mean the, the culture that we live in new zealand would be similar to australia whether it's around sport around socializing and barbecue where we think where we need to go with it and and how it's impacting people's lives obviously negatively from alcohol point of view where do we start? So let me just say this. In the future at some point, and I don't know when, let's say hopefully 10 years, but maybe 20, we will look back at this time of alcohol saturation with astonishment, much like we do now with tobacco. You know how we look back at tobacco and you go, God, I used to smoke on the plane. I used to smoke on the bus at the movies. Yeah. We will look back at this time of alcohol saturation and just be like, oh, my gosh, we used to give alcohol to our kids' sports coaches and we'd get a glass of wine at the at the hairdressers. Like, it's everywhere. Yeah, It is absolutely everywhere. The horse has bolted. The liquor industry is so big and so powerful and so good at lobbying that it's going to take very, very brave governments to implement changes, but they need to because way too many people are struggling. If you were an alien landing on planet Earth, you would think, just looking around, that alcohol was completely harmless. It's advertised everywhere. It's in the supermarkets, readily accessible, super cheap. Like, how would you... To marry that with the fact that it's toxic, addictive carcinogenic a grade one carcinogen most people don't even know that like there are the irrefutable proof that alcohol causes cancer like it's a fact and so to marry that with this environment that's been created where it's everywhere is just crazy so ultimately changes will come i think it's starting people are starting to you know support more changes that need to happen the price needs to be go up the availability needs to be limited and the marketing needs to be curbed alcohol doesn't need to go away that's stupid everyone can choose to do what they want to do but it needs to be treated much more carefully in line with the fact that the product the fundamental facts about the product is that it's dangerous and what about the do you reckon that'll fix the behavioral side of things you know where you're socializing and always 
you know, have beers in hand or whatever it is, wines. I mean, do yeah. you? Yep. Of course. Yep. And it'll be more normal for people to say I'm not drinking and it won't be like, what? Why? Just have one. Come on. What are you doing? All of that. I mean, that's already starting. Yeah. Because even again, I know it's ten, only 10 years, although 10 years, gosh, I'm getting old. <laughs> At the start, when I first got sober, I'd turn up somewhere and the only non-alcoholic drink they'd have is thick, awful orange juice. Mm. Like who wants to drink that all night or ever anyway? Nowadays, you turn up and there'll be some lovely sparkling elderflower. So already, yeah, socially, it's, it's starting to sort of filter. But yeah, that'll just come more and more as we change the whole environment and more people come out, more people share their lived experience. And then, but ultimately, it's got to come down to the governments. They have to tighten regulations. I mean, oh, the, we've got a watershed on the TV here for liquor advertising that you can't advertise past 10 p.m. at night on telly. It's a joke because who watches TV like that anymore? We're all on streaming yeah. services where the ads are just willy-nilly. It's just they know it, but it's they think it's politically it's political suicide because mm. that's what the alcohol lobby tells them. But I think there's actually much more support and certainly growing support for those kinds of changes that governments need to make. Laura, tell us about when you making your decision to, to go sober and live a life of sobriety, how did that impact your circle of friends, social um, circles? I'd just be interested to get your feedback on how that's changed, if at all, for you. So I had one friend say to me that she missed drinking with me, which hurt at the time, but I just thought to myself, she doesn't know. She doesn't know the fact that I was at home. I'd have a drink with her and then go home and have a whole lot more and vomit in the toilet. She's still a good friend of mine and she hardly drinks, but we did used to drink together. I was, like I said to you before, I had a pretty small circle at the time of quitting. I wasn't in a big boozy gang, so that wasn't too hard for me. We still go camping every year with people that drink pretty steadily throughout and I find it a wee bit tricky, but not too bad. My experience of sobriety wasn't that I lost a whole lot of friends, but I know from interviews I did for my last book that for a lot of women in particular, that is a barrier to change. They're worried about losing their friends. Not that their friends are horrible, but that the the way that their friends will want to support them is by not inviting them out for the big boozy nights and then you're missing out. And if that's your main, you know, social network, that's that's hard. So yeah, we, we always talk on our site, Living Sober, about the adjustment that sometimes happens and there may be a period where... You do feel sometimes a bit sad and lonely, but you've just got to hold on, know that you're doing the right thing for yourself and know that eventually what's going to come up and build up are these lovely, authentic, deep, great relationships with people where drinking isn't the focus. Because even though alcohol, you feel like you're having fun connecting with people, you're actually disconnecting from them. Mm. So, but it is it is a long, slow adjustment. So there can be a bit of discomfort there, which I know is tricky. So you just got to hold on and yeah, just just trust and just know that you are doing the right thing and that your future self will thank you. Well, I've got two questions left. One is, what sort of advice do you have for mental health professionals working in the AOD sector? For mental health professionals who who maybe haven't got particular training in, in addiction, if possible, get some. Yeah. <laughs> like I know in New Zealand we run these day-long workshops that are free to attend and even that alone, if you went to one of those, would be powerful. One of the main things we talk about in that is seeing the person behind the addiction. So if someone's sitting in front of you and they're saying, I'm just a, a loser wino who's got no control, you just want to sort of help them kind of 
look behind that a little bit and find out what's driving things maybe and then yeah get them the right supports that they might need whether it be peer support or, or proper addiction counseling but yeah if you if you work in the mental health field and you've you've got people presenting talking about drugs or alcohol and you're not knowing um what to say to them uh, yeah go see if you can find some kind of even just brief training on the way to do it or just don't feel like you have to be the expert on that just say you know, do you want me to help you find a place where you can go and get some support? You know, just walk alongside them. That's the best thing that can be done. Great response, Lotta. And the last one I just want to say is like, what cool things, I know you've got a lot of stuff happening, but what's some exciting projects coming in the works? Uh, Your Living Sober website, I know you mentioned a third book, but I'd be just keen for you to round off with that and how people can get in touch with you. Okay, so my new obsession is diet culture. Diet culture. Yeah, like don't get me started. That's a whole nother podcast, Sam. <laughs> uh, I'm interested in diet culture and diet culture. how bad it is. Oh, my gosh, don't get me started. So anyway, that's what I'm writing my new book on. It's women especially, but the whole world being told that thin is best and thin oh, is healthy, right. and it's just not true. And there's billions of dollars made telling people that they need to shrink their bodies. And I do not know. every Almost every woman I know is trying to shrink her body, even the most – intelligent, high-flying, amazing women. We're all trying to shrink our bodies because we're being told that that's what we need to do to be healthy and good-looking, and it's just absolute bollocks. So this is my new obsession, and that's what I'm writing my new book on, and I'm really interested in it, so watch this space. The working title is Mrs. D is not on a diet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, good one. Uh, Okay. I have to fit that in with the studies, I don't know. Um, When do you reckon that'll be out and out? available for, like the end of the year you're thinking next year my deadline to have it written is the end of next year so 2023 okay. it will probably come out 2024 if i meet that deadline which i will to find me just google mrs d is going without i'm on instagram facebook and obviously the living sober website is where i most commonly hang out it's open to anyone in the world who wants to join us and be kind and it's you can be anonymous and it's free so you know what's stopping you well a lot of it's been great talking to you. You've had we appreciate the power of lived experience. I appreciate you sharing your story with our listeners and the amazing tools that you've created to help people that are struggling or wanting to break the cycle of addiction with alcohol and their relationship with alcohol. Thank you for the work you're doing in this space and the peer work support that you've created there. We appreciate it. And yeah, thanks very much for taking some time and have a chat. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Cheers. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.